We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. Time again for another podcast. Today's topic, we're talking about resigning. More quitting, really, but I just liked resigning because resign and resign are spelled the same, and yet they mean exactly the opposite. You know, one is, I'm done, I'm out, and the other is, yeah, all right, let's do it again. I'll sign up again, let's go. You know, like, you know, you, um, you know, quitting... Not always that bad. But before we get into that, uh, I have to talk about a couple of uh, things that that I forgot to mention previously. First, I, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, I saw Tropic Thunder. I loved it. Uh, I'm listening to the director's commentary now, and I have to say, Robert Downey Jr. is my hero. Because in the movie, he goes through this surgery to look... African-American, even though he's Australian, and he adopts this sort of very weird accent, if you can call it that, that is sort of mildly racist. I I guess I can, yeah, I'm going to go with that. And one of the other, the, the guy in the movie who is actually black says like, what are you doing with that? You know, because there are times when they're not in character, and yet Robert Downey Jr. just keeps up this voice, and he's like, what are you doing? And, you know, why are you still in character? And he's like, look, I don't drop character until the DVD commentary. So on the DVD commentary, he's still doing the voice. And so it's great that he carried through just that little bit, because as soon as I heard it in the movie, I was like, ooh, if he's going to do the commentary, is he going to keep doing the voice? And dang it all, if he ain't, if he just didn't keep going with it. And I totally dig that. And for those of you who saw this in the movie theater, you don't get the benefit of the stuff that they put on the DV, the deleted scenes and all this extra stuff. That's why I'm here. I'm here to, you know, tell all the people who saw it in the theater what you're missing out on. But when the movie came out, when Tropic Thunder came out, it got a huge amount of grief from a whole lot of people because they have that now famous discussion where I'm not going to go through the whole scene, but basically Robert Downey Jr.'s character says, you never go full retard. And people just had freaked out about that. By the way, I have a little bit of problem. I'm, I'm not really sure where I stand on the fence about people saying you can't say people are retarded. I mean, people who are genuinely mentally retarded because i i mean i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure the term is a a medical term so to say oh no no no, you can't use that anymore it, it seems like but but it's not it's not a term of derision. I mean, it is, it is a statement of what you are. I mean, we, you know, we can't rebrand emphysema because it, you find it offensive. On the other hand, I sort of feel like, well, why not? Right? I mean, if they find it offensive, then who am I to say you, you can't be offended by something or you want something changed? You know, I don't know. I feel really on the fence about it, but 
forget about that. So after they have the huge dust up about, uh, you, you know, don't you never go full retard. They got a huge amount of grief for it. And then I guess I never heard how this came up, but I guess they made some sort of act of contrition or something to say, okay, okay, when the DVD comes out, we're going to put something on it that, you know, is sort of an apology, you know, it sort of says, look, you shouldn't be using this word, all this stuff. Well, that was probably what they told somebody, you know, just to get them off their backs. And sure enough, they did it. But what they did may have been actually more offensive than using, you know, the term full retard anyway. Because if you see it, and I, I have to say, it's almost worth, you know, Netflixing uh, the DVD of Tropic Thunder just so you can see this. It's, it's buried on the second page of the special features, which, you know, so many people, like, I'm a rarity. I understand that. Like, I know most people don't dig through the special features like I do. Most people just want to see the movie and be done. But, of course, if I like the movie, I'll do the director's commentary. I'll look at deleted scenes. I'll do everything. Um, it's on the second page of the special features, so already you're not going to see it. I mean, if you don't like special features, that's one thing, but you've got to really, really want it to get to this page because it's on the second page. And once you've seen the deleted scenes or the director's commentary, you're kind of done. But I think it's on the page with like upcoming movie trailers, like the stuff you really don't care about. Okay, so that's one. Second, what they did, they spent, I'm going to guess, a dollar and a half. And I'm not sure what that they spent that dollar and a half on because it looks like they got an intern, a first year student at a design college who may actually be mentally retarded himself. I don't know to make this apology PSA video. It's it's the cheapest looking thing you've ever seen. And the message is nice. You know, it's uh, the only R word you should use to describe these great people is respect or something like that. The message is great. But visually, oh my God, they could not have spent less money on it. Terrible. Like, it's almost like they went out of their way to make it worse. Because, like, the font choice is terrible. I mean, it looks like somebody used, you know, Mac Paint to make this thing. And they didn't even bother using iMovie. And, and, you know, if you're going to apologize to me, I want you to, th I want to think you actually are trying. Like, it, it means it's actually worse for me, you know, like, like if, if you offend me in some way and then I, you know, and I'm all pissed off about it and I'm yelling at you about how I don't appreciate your this and the that, you know, whatever those people were doing. Um, and then you say, oh, I'm sorry. And, and I go to shake your hand and try to make peace. And you put a dog turd in my hand. I'm even more mad now than I think I was during the original insult. Because clearly you didn't mean it. Clearly, you're, you, not only are you not interested in apologizing, you don't see anything that you did was wrong. And you're just trying to make it worse. And really... That's what that video is. It is so unbelievably bad. But, you know, of course, I'm not offended 
by anybody being called retarded. So I find the video hilarious. The fact that they would just, I don't know, man, like just thumb their nose at everybody involved that was complaining about it, I, I think is fantastic. Personally, I think everybody's way too sensitive as it is, and just everybody lighten the hell up. But uh, speaking of newer movies, though, I went to go see Inglorious Bastards in the theater. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil anything. I, I think it's funny, though, uh, when people <laughs> do the spoiler and then go, oh, yeah, uh, spoiler alert. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for that, tough guy. But I guarantee you I'm not going to ruin anything. Um, it is an a weird movie. Um, it, if uh, it, it's it's very definitely a Quentin Tarantino movie, and almost to its fault because he recycled a bunch of stuff from Kill Bill and put it in this. Like the font choice for the credits is very actually. I think it's more Grindhouse than Kill Bill, but the music is very spaghetti western style music like he used uh, in Kill Bill. It almost seems like, you know, and he's done this before, like when, you know, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, they all came out one after another, and you kind of got the feeling like, oh, this is the Quentin Tarantino device of discontinuous timelines and uh, multiple character perspectives. And, you know, I have no beef with the movies individually, but it seems like when you when you put them all together, what started as a neat invention now just seems kind of like a gimmick. And I, this goes back to the first podcast that I was talking about how, you know, the guy screaming in the rain, how the first time it was done, it was probably cool and inventive, and now it's just sort of hacky and weird. And that's just sort of the same way I feel about Inglorious Bastards. Like, he's doing so many things unnecessarily. Like, you know, with the case of Jackie Brown, by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's a delightful movie, um, but I don't know if you could have really told that story as well without doing, you know, the multiple perspectives and the discontinuous timeline and all that stuff. I don't think it would have been as, as good of a movie. That being said, it's unfortunate that that same sort of device had been used before, so now it wasn't as special. But this in in Inglorious Bastards, by the way, I'm hoping that you know the way they shorten movie or or, or names of anything like um uh, uh Curb Your Enthusiasm is just now Curb. Oh, did you see Curb this week? I'm hoping people just shorten this to just turds. Hey, I'm gonna I'm going to the movies tonight. What are you gonna see? Turds. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's all stuff he's using that doesn't add anything like the you know the mariachi enrico morricone music and by the way i'm not kidding it really is enrico morricone music i saw it in the credits um the whole font choice it really adds nothing it just seems really gimmicky uh you know telling it has nothing to do with even how you tell the story there's an aspect to it um where he brings in this whole, well, we've got to scalp the Nazis sort of thing, but that doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't really feel like, oh, we have to have that, you know, we have to give 
you know, crowbar in this sort of spaghetti Western music. I, I, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, what's also crazy about this movie is the accent that Brad Pitt is doing. Not even the accent, the entire character. Because the movie, for the most part, is a kind of a straight-ahead, serious war movie. You know, it's in the vein of the Dirty Dozen or, you know, any of those great old war movies. I'm not even sure they're great. But the character that Brad Pitt is doing is this ridiculous, farcical, southern, accented guy who's the leader of the Bastards. And and by the way, too, did you really need to spell bastards wrong? I mean, is that really getting you anything? Yet again, this is just, really, it just seems gimmicky. I've heard him asked about it, and he doesn't even have a good answer. Oh, I just put my own spin on it. Right, that's my, oh, no, no, let's do my real Quentin Tarantino. And just put my own spin on it. No, wait, that's my Jay Leno. And I have seen Brad Pitt in 12 Monkeys and obviously Fight Club many times. So I know the dude can act. This is clearly a choice to make his portrayal terrible and ridiculous. And you're, and you're like, why? What, what is this getting you? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could have been good and interesting because the guy who plays sort of the main Nazi of the movie is fantastic. He's so good. And everybody else is really good. BJ Novak, meh. But everybody else is really good. But then there's this one weirdo Brad Pitt character that's just kind of like chewing up the scenery. And you're like, what is this? What choice was this? This was weird. So, oh, the other thing about movies in general, 1075. Right. 1075 to see a movie now. Are you kidding me? You know, everybody complains about the declining movie attendance and they're like, oh, the internet, yeah, it's ruining it. No, 1075 is ruining it. And and how about this movie theaters? Now, for those of you who don't know, there's this weird ratio of who gets how much of each ticket sale. And it changes the longer a movie is in the theaters. So opening weekend the movie studio makes the bulk of the ticket sale. And then the the theater itself gets a little bit. And then the longer it stays in the theater, the movie studio starts making less and less, and the theater makes more and more. So, how about this? You want me to go see Inglorious Bastards in the theater, but it's already been out like a month. It's, if it's not a month, it's three weeks. It's in a smaller theater... It's not in the big theater. It's in the smaller theater. Uh, there's fewer people in there. It's, an, it's not the same experience. I'm not with it. I'm not with a whole bunch of people. I'm with a more intimate group. I, I prefer more people, especially if it's a comedy, you know, where there's some big crowd reaction. I mean, that's great to see in a big room. Okay, so fewer people, smaller screen. Maybe the sound's not as good. Maybe it's not a digital. No, I can guarantee you it's not a digital projection. So why would I do that? Why would I go and pay the exact same amount of money that if I had seen it opening weekend, I would have seen it in the big theater? What's my reason to pay the exact same price and see it in a crappier experience? Hey, movie theaters, you want me to go? Okay, you are getting the lion's share of the ticket price now that it's been out a month. How about passing some of that onto me 
so I have a reason to go, right? Like, as soon as it's out of the big theater, if it's a big action movie, I don't want to go. I mean, I've got a projector here. I mean, yeah, okay, it's it's not as big of an image, but it's a pretty big image. And I can drink beer, and I can sit on my own couch, and I, no one, no one is talking during the movie. You know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't going to talk about the whole, uh, you know, uh, Serena Williams yelling at a judge saying she's going to cram a tennis ball down her throat or Kanye West interrupting Taylor Swift or any of that. I wasn't going to do any of that because everybody's done it to death. But really, you want to talk about rudeness. I did not pay 10. All right. I'm going to do it intentionally now. I'm going to do a little Louis Black. I did not pay... 1075 for you to talk during the movie. I don't want to hear your commentary. I don't want to hear a peep from you. Wait till after the movie and then you can talk about it. Although there was a, a moment in I was so tempted. Uh, there was a moment in Inglorious Bastards where I wanted to turn to my friend and say, the first rule of Inglorious Bastards is you don't talk about Inglorious Bastards. But I didn't because I have respect for the movie theater experience. Okay, so, movie theater owner, why not charge $8 for the smaller theater experience? You're still making more money than if I hadn't come at all. Sure, you're not making $10.75. You're making 8 bucks, but you're making the lion's share. If I had gone opening weekend you'd probably be making $2 because the studio's getting the lion's share of that. So where's the motivation for me to go once it's out of the big theater? Pass some savings on. Get my ass in there. And this is a big problem that I feel that people, uh, companies just aren't grasping. It's not enough to try and get new customers. You have to hold on to those customers because guess what? You're not the only game in town anymore. I mean, you talk about movie theaters. Now, they haven't been the only game in town in years since, you know, VHS was invented. Or how about this? Um, you know, cable modem operators, cable internet folks, or cable TV folks. You're not the only game in town. And I look, I open my newspaper, or I watch TV, and I see all these ads all the time. Hey, new customers, it's twenty four ninety nine a month. Only new customers, it's twenty four ninety nine. Hey, I'm an existing customer. You got any deal for me? No, for you, it's $50 a month. But I've been a customer 10 years. I don't care still $50 a month you know you're not the only game in town oh you you want to you want to reprogram your TiVo that uh, you're going to have to get from somebody else boy you wouldn't want to do that would you really because I'm kind of thinking about doing that right now come on where's the customer loyalty where's the uh, where's the innovation all right I was probably going to save that for another podcast now I've totally ruined that for you know whatever respect or loyalty or whatever podcast I was going to do but Let's uh, move on to today's topic of resigning. Are you threatening me? No. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I have a better solution. You keep me on the payroll as an outside consultant. And in exchange for my salary, my job will be never to tell people these things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. So one of the best times to resign yourself of a situation is when you are auditioning or interviewing for something and you just tell yourself, doesn't matter, I'm not going to get this anyway. So let's just have fun. 
Or I don't even want this job. I'm just doing it for, you know, the interviewing experience. Yeah, that's good. Let's just do it. Because boy, that is freeing. When you can say that and do that, oh my God, all the pressure is off. Your your hands are not sweating. I mean, that's how I met uh, my lovely wife. I was just, I had given up. I had given up on the idea that I would ever date anyone. And she mistook that for confidence because I had zero confidence. And I tell you what, fellas out there, nothing turns a woman off faster than desperation. It comes off like a cheap cologne. And I swear to you, women can smell it. You know how they say dogs can smell fear? Well, women can smell desperation. And there's nothing, nothing that turns a woman off faster. So when I was in college uh, in, in the class with Miriam, I had given up. I was like, screw it. I've, I've tried. I've tried for 13 years to get girls to like me. Oh, no, longer than that. Uh, 20, yeah, almost. well, almost 20 years to get girls to like me. I started at five. Now, this is the thing. When you go for 20 years and you can't get girls to like you or do anything, when you try for 20 years at anything and you cannot get anywhere with it, if you don't give up after that, boy, or at least at least take a break from it, reevaluate, do something, that is craziness. That is absolute craziness because clearly something is going wrong. And I was okay at just giving up. I mean, I wasn't going to put myself on the line anymore. Rejection was just brutal. And I just said, I just can't, I can't get beat up anymore. And then it worked out. And I think, you know, that's that's that old adage, oh, you never find love when you're looking for it. It's when, only when you're not looking for it. I think that's actually probably the reason, because if you're not looking for it, you don't come off as sad and desperate. So in another instance where I had given up before I had even started, I actually went on an audition once out of this small theater company, and I loved the stuff that they did. By the way, I have to tell you, I just, uh, I have to tell you what they did, which was they ran an old school vaudeville show. And at the time, I guess I really didn't even appreciate what it was because I was like, you know, 18 and I would go to the Gaslight Theater and see their shows. And it was a lot of fun and very cool. But I guess I didn't realize that that kind of stuff just doesn't happen anywhere. Nobody is doing this. And what they would do is the first half of the, of the show was a uh, one of those old, uh, you know, damsel in distress, uh, villain with the mustache and the hero who comes to save the day kind of um, plays. And people would encourage to throw popcorn and boo the villains. And it was a live stage show. That Even saying that alone seems crazy. And then the second half of the show was more traditional variety vaudeville show. You know, the, the, the two comedians who come out. Hey, Bob, where did I see you? you know, who was that woman I saw you with? That was no woman. That was my wife. You know, old Fozzie Bear style jokes. You know, all that stuff. Oh, my God. And, and, I'm, and it's one of those things you don't really understand how great that is. Because it's there. And when you grew up with it, 
and it had always been there. You were like, not always. I mean, you know, it, it was probably only there for, you know, 10 years or something. Uh, you think, well, this is just the way it is. But, oh, my God, I would kill to go back and see that show again or any of those shows that they used to do there again because you don't get that kind of experience anywhere else. The, the theater's closed. and and But when I was auditioning for that, I had given up because I was like, I'm not going to get this. I, I, I don't sing. Um, I had tried, uh, you know, I tried rehearsing, but it was, it was a great audition. And everybody was like, God, you are so relaxed. And I was like, oh, am I? Oh, I don't know. I'm just doing this for fun. So, hey, let's do it. But here's another thing. Every audition I've ever been on, they have always cast the wrong people. And all the additions I've ever been on where I thought I was really good, never got it. And all the ones I sucked at, I, I usually got. Although that's not exactly true. I've, been on, I've, I've sucked at a lot of auditions that I did not get. But all the ones I have gotten, I think, have been from sucky auditions. Eh, that's not exactly true, but whatever. Let's go with it. But I did see the show... Because I got to see everybody audition because we all sat in the theater while people went up, you know, one at a time went up on the stage and they did their song and they, and they read their scene and whatnot. Um, so I saw everybody. And boy, if they did not 100% cast everybody that sucked. The one good person that they picked, they gave the smallest role to. I'm just like, what is the matter with these people? Am I see? Are they seeing something that I'm not seeing? Were we all not in the room? And that guy got a ton of laughs when he did this same scene that a dozen people before him had already done and we'd already heard all the jokes. And that guy was average at best. I mean, could, I mean, it, you know, when you're in an, an audience and you're watching the audition, it's very obvious who's good because the people who get the laughs are the good ones. And it's, you know, it's it's right there in front of you. You can hear the response. Anyway, that's just me being bitter. <laughs> but getting back to giving up, um, you know, you have to, at some point, the old term, you know, you're going to fish or cut bait. Because at some point, you have to recognize that things are going horribly wrong. And you have to decide well, how much longer are we going to do this? How much longer are, are we going to give ourselves to see if this gets better? Or are we just going to say, you know what, enough of this. So uh, a good example of this is Sarah Palin. You know, here I was railing against her because she quit uh, the, the governorship of uh, Alaska. And it turns out from everything I've heard, she quit because of the ongoing investigation in some brouhaha about how she handled uh, uh, the trooper, federal trooper situation up there. And the legal bills were going to be way too much. And so she was like, well, I got to I just got to get out of this because I'm going to get buried under legal bills. And if I ever want to have a political campaign again, I can't have this specter of this long, drawn-out trial hanging over me. So I just got to go. And that's what Nixon did. Uh, you know, he saw that he was up to his eyeballs in trouble with Watergate. And he was like, look, I'm just going to quit. And then, oh, boy, he lucked out that uh, – not lucked out. Well, Ford pardoned him. He was like, yeah, you know, that's fine. 
that's that's a really great joke that I didn't get uh, after a while. There's a there's a episode of Saturday Night Live where the press secretary to Gerald Ford hosted. Now I know what you're thinking. That sounds like a nightmare of a show. Well, back in the old days of Saturday Night Live. The host was not in every single sketch. That was something that they did, I want to say in the 90s, that that really started, where the host had to be in every sketch. Where back in the 70s, you know, when they got the press secretary, he was only in like two sketches. But they did a sketch where uh, Chevy Chase played Gerald Ford. By the way, if you're not watching Community... On uh, Thursday nights, NBC, you really should watch it. Chevy Chase is in it. He only has a minor role. Uh, The guy from Talk Soup is in it, and he's great. And uh, one of the guys from The Daily Show is in it, and there's a hot chick in it. Uh, It's very funny. There's only been one episode, so you're not going to miss much. See the trailer online community. Anyway, getting back to Chevy Chase. He's playing Ford, even though, boy, this was a weird move for Saturday Night Live, because... You know, nowadays, if you don't do an impression of the president, well, they don't want you. Say what you want about Fred Armisen's impression of Obama. At least he's trying an impression, right? Like he's trying to match the cadence and the rhythm of the way Obama speaks. Okay, it's not the best one they've ever done, but it's something. You know, hell, even uh, they tried to do a Walter Mondale impression when he was running, and it was pretty good. Gary Kroger did that one, a little trivia there for you SNL fans. But Chevy Chase, when he was doing Ford, zero. He, there was no there was no funny wig. There was no prosthetics. He didn't change his voice. The only thing that Chevy Chase did was fall down. Right, because Ford had this uh, reputation of tripping over things and bonking his head, which, ironically, I would say George Bush had way more incidents of falling down than, you know, I mean, the dude fell off his couch while eating, choking on a pretzel. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. And yet, George Bush never got this whole bumbling rap like Gerald Ford did. But anyway, so Chevy Chase is doing this impression, a non-impression of Gerald Ford, and his press secretary is there, and the press secretary makes a mistake, and Gerald Ford, uh, played by Chevy Chase, looks at him and goes, you're pardoned. And I didn't get the joke, you know, in 1977 when I was watching it, because I was watching it in reruns. I wasn't watching it when I was five. I wasn't watching it when I was seven either. I was probably watching it in 81. And uh, so now I, now I get the joke. Thank you, Frost Nixon. So anyway, fortunately for Nixon, Gerald Ford says, yeah, 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 I'll pardon the president because, oh, the country would just be all torn up if we had a president getting impeached or arrested or imprisoned. No, I think they'd be pretty okay with that, actually. You know, they were all mad about, um, you know, uh, uh, Vietnam and didn't like this whole scandal and everything. No, I I really think we would have been okay. And I I guarantee you there would have been a lot of people who would have been okay to see uh, George W. Bush uh, get that screws put to him. Uh, I am not drinking alcohol, by the way. You'll hear the ice cubes clinking in my glass. For some reason, I'm just getting um, my my throat's totally dried up, so I got some water here. I just didn't want you to think this was another drunken podcast. That would be a fun podcast to do, another drunken podcast. So, probably the hardest giving up I ever had to do was when I gave up doing stand-up comedy. 
Uh, I had been doing it for a while. Uh, I think I even started, I know I started when I was in high school. And I probably got, I got into, I know I was in college when I stopped. So maybe I did it for two years. And there were all kinds of problems and things that if I knew now, well, well, all right, because I'm doing this, I'll educate uh, the kids. Um, The thing about stand-up is you actually have to work on the jokes. Now, I know that sounds obvious to most people, but really... You know, you think the idea is you just, you have this idea for a joke, you go up, you do it, it gets laughs or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then you scrap it and you start over. No, that's not what most people do. Most people, I mean, the the successful comedians, they'll do it. And if it doesn't get a laugh, they'll sort of figure out why, they'll tweak it, they'll maybe, you know, move some words around, they'll, they'll take, they won't throw the joke out. They'll keep it because they like the premise and they'll, they'll, they'll make it work, you know, eventually and after, you know, lots and lots of working on it. But I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, I went through all my good stuff early and it, it got okay laughs, but I was really looking for the thing that would just kill and I never found it rather than I should have just taken that early stuff and worked on it a little bit more. And, you know, the, the night I decided to quit doing stand-up, because uh, when I when I got into stand-up, when I wanted to do stand-up, The Tonight Show was everything, right? Like, it was the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Johnny Carson was still there, although leaving soon. And um, those stand-up spots were really all I cared about, like seeing all those stand-ups in the 80s doing their stuff. That was fantastic. And I thought, really, that's kind of what being a stand-up was, was, you know, you get some jokes together, and then you go on The Tonight Show. And then, you know, Johnny waves you over, and you have a good time, and, and that's that's it. You know, that's being a stand-up. No, apparently, being a stand-up, because, and I learned this, because the guys who run the open mic nights that you go and do stand-up for um, are working comedians and they're angry and they're bitter and um they they would talk about just going to one club after another in the middle of nowhere and 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 not just even locally i mean it, look if i could have just toured you know the bay area and hit eight clubs a week uh, i would have done that but no i mean it's in you know cincinnati but not in cincinnati outside of cincinnati the suburb of cincinnati and you're there you're alone and none of your friends are traveling with you you know it's not like you know any of the other comedians on the bill and they don't want to hang out with you and you really don't want to hang out with them and they're just as angry as you are and and you, you the only time you have anything to do is that one hour you're on stage and then the rest of the you know 23 you're just sort of hanging out uh and and it's a miserable life and so uh lank and earl were the two guys um who were running the open mic night that night and they were talking about all the terrible places they had to go uh coming up uh you know to, to to do the comedy tour I was 22nd out of 25 comedians and I I got up and, and it was funny too, because I originally thought that your placement on the bill 
was based on just when you showed up to sign up. No. The woman who ran the open mic night at the Holy City Zoo, which is no longer there, she knew you. You know, she would see the same people coming back and coming back. And your placement on the bill was based on how funny she thought you were. But there was no conversation. You would give her $2. You'd tell her your name. I I didn't know she knew who I was. So clearly, I was terrible. And so, because I was 22nd of 25, I got up, I did my thing. The only people in the audience were the three people who were going on after me. We all agreed, we'll stick around, we'll watch the rest of your bits, you know, they were only five minutes long, whatever. And we were leaving that night, and there was a cookie place on Clement Street, and it was called A Piece of Heaven. I looked over there, and I said, you know what, if that's if this is a piece of heaven, I don't want nothing to do with it. Uh, and that way, I said that to one of the other comedians as we were leaving, and I was that was my last gasp at trying to be funny. That was one of those things that you know I, I don't know if anything could have changed that outcome because honestly, if I had gotten good at it, I wouldn't have wanted to be on the on tour to the Chuckle Hut in you know Rancho Cucamonga. I, I wouldn't have wanted to do any of that. So maybe it is all for the best that that stand-up comedy didn't work out. Uh, And now I can sit here and do this lovely podcast from the comfort of my home. Now, it's also important to give up when you are wrong, because I have worked with a whole bunch of people who, no matter how wrong they are, they will just grab onto their opinion and they're never letting it go because it just seems like, well, if I give up this opinion, I'll, I'll look weak or, and I can't, I can't give it up. Really? Give it up. Because you have two choices. You have the option of your perceived idea that you will seem weaker, which I don't really think you will, or you can come off like a lunatic. I mean, haven't you heard these people who are arguing a point and the other people on the other side are so good and they're right and they're so good at arguing their point and you are clearly in the hole and you're just flailing your arms wildly. It's like, no, you're wrong. Stop it. You're you're coming off like a weirdo. And that has got to be more damaging to your office career than losing an argument about which side to put the staple on or something. I don't know. All these arguments are so stupid, too. Just give it up. It's it's fine. You know, and there's definitely, you know, there was a guy I used to work with who tried to engage me in these arguments. And I'd be like, uh-huh. Groovy, man. Mostly because I just didn't even want to get into it. I just didn't even care. And then there's the exact opposite, right? I guess this is the re-signing part, where you do it even though you know there's no winning. You know, the the classic example is probably uh, To Killing Mockingbird. He knows that they're going to find that guy guilty, even though the evidence is stacked and stacked in the opposite way. I mean, he so clearly did not rape her um, with his one good hand. Uh, no, he, he, he has to do it, though. Atticus Finch has to try. And he does a really good job. And in a way, his trying 
may have moved the racist bar ever so slightly in the right direction. You know, he he argues this case and, and does a fantastic job of it. And the jury deliberates for way longer than anybody thought they were going to. And there's a line in the in the movie, at least, if not in the book. By the way, this is probably the best example of where the movie is way better than the book. The book is just full of nonsense, right? Like there's this whole thing with Boo Radley and shenanigans the kids were getting into. The movie is none of that. The movie is the trial. And that's what's, that is what's really the should be the focal point of that book the rest of the stuff is just monkey business you could have you could have made a whole separate other book of just hey gem and scout running through the countryside we we got presents from boo radley you know it's like ugh, really but the trial is great and that's why that movie is so great is because they separated the wheat from the chaff and they really nailed it so anyway getting back to to the point which is they say in the movie, if not the book, um, they are taking a long time to deliberate. Maybe this is a good sign for us. Of course, it winds up not being. Spoiler! See, I did it there. Booyah. But it was a fight worth fighting. And he never gave up. And maybe he changed a couple of people's minds a little bit. And maybe the next time that somebody is wrongly accused, they'll remember this time and say, you know what? We were wrong last time. We have a chance to do the right thing and make a difference. So we're going to vote the right way. I think the people who really should learn how to quit and and probably the ones who have the toughest time quitting are professional athletes. I mean, I I guess I get it. Um, you know, it seems as though so much of their identity is sports because you know they've been doing it, training for it, living it, being idolized for it, making millions of dollars for it for so many years. I could see how that would be hard to give up. But on the other hand, especially football players, you get hit for a living. I mean, maybe not if you're the quarterback, but you're going to take your share of shots too. At some point, your body just has to say to you, if you're listening, yeah, no, I can't do this anymore. This sucks. I'm too old. I don't heal as quickly as I used to. We got to stop. And what really is unfortunate about the professional athlete is that they really tarnish their legacy. And for what? To play another year? I mean, if you got you got to look at the big picture and be like, "Okay, I could piss off all my fans." quit playing for the team that I have been playing with for 15 years to go play, what, one season with this other team? Because, I mean, how many more seasons do you think you got in you? One, two, five? I doubt it. I doubt five. Probably more like two tops. More likely one. You're going to have one season. You're probably going to get hurt. You're so old that you can't bounce back like you used to. 
and it's over. And and now you've alienated all your fans. I mean, you look at Brett Favre. He here he said, "Well, I'm going to quit. I'm done with the Green Bay Packers. You know, I'm I clearly it ain't got the juice anymore." And then the Vikings are like, "Hey man, you want to play for us? Hey man." And he was like, uh, yeah, okay. And now everybody hates him in Green Bay and it, it sucks. And when you, when you look at his legacy, people are not going to look as fondly as him at the, as they would have. And, and if your whole identity is this sport, you would think that the legacy would make, that it would be, it would be important to you. I certainly would be important to me. I mean, you know, if I, if I ever made a movie, for instance, I would want, I wouldn't want to make a crappy sequel if I already had millions and millions of dollars banked on that first movie. And that's what these sports guys have. They've got millions of dollars, you know, especially a dude like Brett Favre. Okay, so there's, you know, a linesman who makes a couple of mil a year um, and he's, you know, 35 and... Maybe he wants to do a couple of more years because that's another couple of million dollars and he's going to have to live on this the rest of his life. By the way, wah, boohoo for you. You'll have to live off, you know, really a million dollars. If you only had one million dollars in the bank, that's $50,000 a year for 20 years. Okay, that's no interest, no reinvestment, nothing. That's straight stuffing a million dollars in your mattress taking out $50,000 a year. Okay, so these guys have multiple millions of dollars. And really, you can't live on that? So if I had made a movie, made millions and millions of dollars on it, and they said, we want you to make this other crappy movie with a group of people who aren't as good as the first, and you don't know them, maybe they're good, maybe they're not, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a pass on that. I'd rather... You know, especially if I had a legion of dedicated fans, I would say, you know what, it's it's more important for me to have this movie live on than make just some sort of horrible sequel for not very much money, for not money that comes anywhere near what it would be worth for me to sell my soul out. But then again, of course, I'm not in that position. I wish it was. I wish I had that opportunity to sell out, but alas, I do not. And on the subject of quitting, I just have to say one more time, Joe versus the Volcano, if you haven't seen it, has the best quitting scene in any movie. I'm not going to pull the clip. I'm not going to put it in the podcast. You just have to go see the movie. If this is what gets you to see it, then, then go see it. And I, I just have to say, I love the line, I should say something. Like he's almost out the door. And then it just hits him. I should say something. Oh, I love that. I love the whole, you know, you can't, you can't fire me. I quit kind of whole shebangabang. But as much as I love the idea of quitting, there are times when you just can't. I mean, you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going to give up my dreams of doing this or that or being famous or playing music. But sometimes you just can't. I mean, that's why I still run the website and put out the podcast and do my fun little animations. But I, I'm putting it in perspective, right? Like, I can't not do those things. Like, those things in the past that I would have thought maybe I could have turned into some sort of career. I can't not do them. 
Because why not? I mean, I'm not spending any money to do them. All they do is take up a little bit of time. And right now I'm unemployed and I got nothing but time. Well, that's not exactly true. But uh, I'm putting it in perspective. I'm not sacrificing anything. I'm not pulling a Kevin Smith and maxing out every credit card I have and taking $28,000 to make a movie. Although that actually worked out really well for him. But (laughs) I don't have that kind of confidence in anything uh, that I could make myself. So I'm putting it in perspective. And, And I guess if you can do that, then you don't need to quit. So fear not, true believers. I'm not quitting the podcast just yet. Although this episode is coming to an end. I don't have any ideas for next one. Gosh, I hope I come up with one. But till then... For me, Tyler Durden, Bright Brown, we're going to do this one more time. Till then! Till then!